The Saint of the Wilderness, also known as Sheffy, by Jess Carr, Chapter 9, Part 1. Shortly before Thanksgiving, in 1844, Wendell Swecker's house resounded with the cries of Elizabeth Swecker Sheffy's first child. Robert had not been there for the birthing. It all happened so suddenly that by the time he was fetched from his new school, east of Huddle, Elizabeth lay smiling in her bed, her labor ended, and the proud mother of a son. After Robert looked at the infant, he went out under the pear tree in the side yard and knelt and thanked God for his newborn boy. He stayed there until the cool fall ground had chilled his knees. When he returned to the house, the midwife was preparing to leave, but she asked to be informed of the child's name. I'd like to name him James Wesley, Robert said. I want to honor my brother and Uncle James, and I'd like to think that God would let the little fellow be like John Wesley one of these days. He looked at Elizabeth for approval. She agreed, and so it was. Elizabeth was again heavy with child in the late spring of 1846. Robert, we've got to have room of our own after this one comes, she said one day early in June. It was not a point he could argue with. Wendell Swecker had already added more space to his house, but it was still too small, especially since James Wesley had begun to walk. That weekend, Robert took Daniel with him to a revival in Grayson County near the North Carolina state line. As they rode along, Daniel was playing his violin, and Robert held fast the lead line from his blind brother's horse. He asked his brother to stop playing for a minute. Daniel, Elizabeth, and I have got to get a place of our own. There's going to be two babies soon, and double the amount of chatter isn't going to sit well with the older folks. It unnerves them, and we are crowding them. Daniel said that that sounded logical. What I'm thinking is this. Would you be willing to sell me a good lot of the acreage we all deeded to you? Would you just as soon have some money and land, both as have nothing but land? Daniel fiddled a note or two playfully and said, Sure, I'll do it. I always did think all of you were too good to me. Uh, you should have had a fifth of the farm anyway. The truth is, I'd like to have a little money. You know, I don't enjoy staying in one place very long, and I'm hankering to take another trip back up the valley of Virginia. Randall would like that too. He's not so happy being hired out to my renter. What part would you be willing to sell? Daniel played a few more notes, then said, I'll sell you a hundred acres on the southwest side. You always did like the creek and you could build yourself a cabin there. The bargain was made without stopping a horse. Robert went silent for a while, figuring uh, how much of his savings from teaching would be left to start the cabin after paying Daniel the agreed price of $700 for the land. They rode on to Greenville to spend the night, and there ate the victuals and sweet honey of strangers. The next day, before the service started, Daniel played hymns on his violin while Robert wandered about the churchyard. 
talking to individuals and small groups of early arrivals about the loving kindness of a great and good God, perhaps the preacher would not thank him or even know about his work in advance of the service. One thing was certain, however, and it was the only reward needed, potential converts would fill the church pews a great deal warmer in spirit and more receptive in heart than if he, Robert Sheffy, had not walked among them. He would sit in a back pew behind his adopted flock, and they would know that he observed their every mood. If someone looked in agony of mind, he would kneel by his pew, or, if he had been ineffective, search that person out on the church lawn after the service. If his help was spurned, uh, and if he uh, knew that the pain of the would-be penitent was genuine, he was not adverse to following the man whenever he was on foot or horseback from the church grounds, calling out his uh, love and concern, praying aloud that the sinner act now with courage, free of pride or fear of embarrassment. During the remainder of the summer, he continued his travels, but without Daniel, who had told his brother that he believed in the work but found it repetitious and tiring. Robert learned that Daniel enjoyed the variety of friendships and found the diversity he sought in the tavern as well as the church. The first week in September, he returned from a trip to Christiansburg in Montgomery County and found that Elizabeth had given birth to their second child, now nearly a week old. Again, a brother was honored, and the boy child was named Hugh Trigg. When she was up and well again, Elizabeth pleaded with him to forego his travels and exhortations and stay at home for a while. Papa has been more than good to us, but Robert, it's not up to him to feed your babies and provide our beds, she said. Her remarks were not unexpected, for Robert too had noticed Wendell Swecker's manner lately. During the spring, his father, father-in-law had cast hostile glances from the garden where he sweated alone. At other times, his words were short, if not downright curt. But surely Elizabeth's father could see the importance of his, Robert's, Christian work. I guess I'll have to stay home and see if I can get some men lined up who are good with and adds, uh, maybe we can have a cabin ready by cold weather, uh, he said, but reluctance showed in his manner as well as his voice. Robert, there's nothing wrong with loving all of God's children, but your own come first. Can't any man deny that, Elizabeth said. Uh, when the school session started in October, the new cabin placed on a rolling bare spot of ground and in site of Cripple Creek, uh, was well underway. After school, Robert customarily rode back to the home site and pitched in uh, during whatever, uh, doing whatever he could to help with the labor. So pleased was he with the rising c cabin and the setting of trees and jutting rocks surrounding it that he would sometimes draw the seen in chalk for his for the school children to see 
At other times, he would pray about his new home in their morning devotionals. Uh, his prayers were long, and he could feel the children's uneasiness, but he knew that they got restless not so much for from the length of the prayers as from the fact that he talked simply to God as if he were perched upon the desk in the very room where all of them sat. He never smiled about it, but it was a little amusing to see the children lift their heads after their, his prayers and look around frighteningly or suspiciously as if they expected actually to see this divine being to whom Robert spoke so lovingly and with such familiarity. God is our friend to love and talk to as we talk to our mothers and fathers, he would say. In fact, he is our father, our loving father. Does anybody here not love his father? He would ask. No child would raise his hand, and he would go on. You see, you go to your own father and sit upon his knee because you love each other. God is like that. So there is no reason we shouldn't talk to him as if he were our father. And right here in this room, eight days before Christmas, the Robert Sheffies moved into the nearly completed cabin. Although Robert himself had worked after school hours to stuff the chink and dab between the logs, two rooms were still unfinished. The cabin had four rooms, a limestone fireplace, and a steeply arched roof that allowed for a very roomy garret. Whatever joy of ownership had been lacking in the beginning quickly disappeared. Robert could see the fruit of his own labors, could remember the sweet the sweat he shed in notching the adz-hewn logs with concave and convex V's so they would dove dovetail at the corners. He had helped make the shingles also from short chunks of chestnut that were split into thin boards with a fro. Uh, his hands were still calloused from the gripping, from gripping and driving the small wooden maul against the blade of the fro time and time again until he felt that the mound of thin boards was high enough to cover every house and or cabin roof and huddle. Yet all the work he had done still comprised the smaller share felling the trees, snaking them out of the mountains uh, with, with horses and log chains, and adds hewing the logs until they were smooth and straight on two sides had been the biggest jobs of all. When all the wages and material he had had to buy were added up, he was a hundred dollars in debt. Elizabeth was worried by the indebtedness. There won't be much Christmas celebrated in this house, she said. If it's not the wind blowing across our bed that keeps me awake, it's wondering how we'll make out if you go to debtor's prison. I'll talk to the Lord about it, Robert said. I've got a hundred and eighty dollars coming for the final school term. That'll pay the debt and keep us this summer, the Lord willing. By working diligently during the few warm days of late December and early January, he was able to finish the chinking and dabbing. On the final day, it was so cold that the dab was like stale bread in his hands. 
he his work would probably need to be repeated, for he had run out of horsehair, and the dab would probably crumble and fall out without the binding substance. If necessary, he'd redo the work in the spring, but if it would keep the chill wind and drifting snow from their sleeping faces now, he wouldn't worry about it. Cripple Creek flooded her banks when March came, but water three times as high would not endanger the cabin so securely perched on the knoll. During that period, when Robert rode home from his school, he would find Elizabeth standing in the front door, watching the swirling water when wind past her uh, house, rushing frantically for an outlet into New River. It is a cleansing of nature, he would say, as he paused to watch a few moments with her. The floods clean and nourish, and spring is not far behind. Praise God for all his blessings. During the last week of school, Robert took all 17 of his ch students for a creekside walk so they might observe and appreciate the wonders of nature as he did. He found that many of them did so already, while still others seemed hardly aware of the beauties around them. The latter group complained of the foolishness of wandering about the meadows and stream, complained with more vigor than they would have dared used had not it been the last day of school. Robert uh, realized, too, that some of the malcontents would be backed up by their parents, who would be just as happy having the children at home preparing the gardens for planting. Nevertheless, he tried to make the nature study interesting. During his walking lectures, he told of the parts that melting snow and sunshine played in the growth of budding plants and leafing trees. Once, as he stopped to make a point, he noticed that half his class was missing. Looking down Cripple Creek, he could observe several of the boys trying to make a dam by breaking off tree limbs and stacking them in the path of a tributary branch emptying into Cri Cripple Creek. You mustn't break the tree's limbs unless you intend to put them to good use, Robert called sternly. They are living things, that, just like you and me. How would you like somebody to twist your arm off? Some of the children bowed their heads in shame, and others snickered. Robert did not ch uh, chase, chastise them further, but walked to the nearest tree and placed his arms about it. I love the trees, he said. God made them and breathed a special kind of life into them. If we tear away their limbs and strip them of their bark, they will surely die and lose their very special voice of praise. At last, the children were gone until the following October, and all Robert's supplies were packed away. First, he would help Elizabeth prepare their garden, and then he would be on his way to continue his exhortations. During the winter, he had been told of the isolation of Burke's Garden, a growing frontier settlement far to the northwest, and of what a beautiful spot it was. He could think of no better place to proclaim God's loving kindness and perhaps to explore that vast domain even farther and follow the 
meanderings of Wolf Creek and then cross East River Mountain into territories he had never been never before seen as the day drew nearer for the planned departure Elizabeth seemed to grow sad part of the reason he knew was her knowledge that each year his trips were taking him farther and farther into the wilderness and longer and longer for him to return when will you be back this time she asked when the first uh, phase of the planting was done whenever the lord's will might be don't you worry any for our needs will be provided should i ask papa to help me do the may planting in the garden no i will be home by then the lord willing he disappeared into another room and came back with their money box he handed it to elizabeth for counting our debts are paid and there is seventy six dollars left if i counted it right that ought to keep us until school starts again i won't spend none of it if i don't have to she assured him i know you won't you're a good wife elizabeth keep the money box well hidden for there are all kinds of new people settling along the creek she cooked him a fine dinner that night salt cured a hog meat fried potatoes and hominy with corn bread and honey he drank a second glass of buttermilk while she put the boys into an early bed james wesley now three years old protested with strong lungs and robert moved out of hearing range to the front steps the night was warm for mid-april such a sense of peace prevailed that he found himself thinking sorrowfully of leaving this place where the wind whispered through the trees and God's creatures scampered playfully. He was ch chastening himself for these selfish thoughts when Elizabeth came to him dressed in a clean flannel nightgown so long that her feet had become entangled in the hem as she walked. She sat beside him, tilting her head backward and giving it a quick shake to distribute the long hair flowing or falling down her back. Do you ever do any thinking about me when you're on your trips? She asked. Yes, he said, and he stroked her silky hair from the crown to the end of the strands. There, the flannel felt good as a resting place for his hand. Yes, riding along, I'm always thinking of you and the babies. I'm a little lonesome, but doing God's will is a lonesome task sometimes. Are you right sure you don't wish you'd never married me and was free to go and come when you please? I haven't changed my first notion, Elizabeth. She rested the weight of her body against him, then, and neither of them spoke as they listened to the sounds of spring nighttime. The stars were bright, a warm breeze breeze whispered about them and cripple creek tinkled a louder than usual melody at daylight she kissed him on the cheek before he climbed onto the saddle but you're not taking any of the money she called the sweet lord will provide for my every need he said as his image faded into the hazy dawn his exhortations in burke's garden were not well received he himself innocently jeopardized their effectiveness. 
when he had topped Walker's Mountain and ridden farther north until the vast, flat, garden-like expanse of land could be entered from the most accessible side on the east, he had not been prepared for the beauty he was to come upon as he crested the mountain. There lay before him a picturesque valley of fertile land framed by mountains thick with the largest trees he had ever seen. The grass was greener and the air seemingly more pure than in any place he had ever been. Flocks of birds, both melodious and colorful, flew playfully from ridge to ridge, their voices haunting in the still stillness. He could not truly imagine what the Garden of Eden must have looked like, but here, he thought, is the nearest thing to it. He was so taken with this gem of nature set apart in the wilderness that he hitched his horse to a sourwood sapling and knelt upon a moss-covered flat rock to say a prayer. A man came up out of the valley on horseback and passed by him. So peaceful was his communion with the creator of this beautiful garden of fertile earth that he prayed to keep on praying so that it would not be broken. He had not finished when the solitary rider returned back down the mountain. Finally, when he had straightened his stiff knees, mounted his horse, and reached the valley below, he found that he was being looked upon with suspicion. It had already been reported that a certain crazy man had been seen kneeling on the mountain, and it had been observed that he his praying had lasted for over four hours. Are you a preacher? Some of the sympathetic extended the benefit of a doubt. No, not exactly, he had to reply. He left Burke's garden and an uneasy host before the week was out and followed Wolf Creek along the south side of East River Mountain for a full day's distance. The territory he reached was sparsely settled, and he anticipated the possibility of sleeping under stars as the distance between houses and cabins grew farther and farther apart. Wolf Creek began to grow wider and deeper, and he suspected that before he went many more miles, the stream which he followed would empty into New River. He was debating whether to keep on his present course or across East River Mountain to the more populated settlements he had heard about when his horse gave a warning whinny out of the brush ahead of him an elderly man staggered into the road and fell robert dismounted and started to wipe the blood from the nose and mouth of the fallen man who now wept quite openly while he was yet kneeling over the wounded man a second man young but husky sprung out of the brush, as if to attack his prey again. I whooped him. He thought he could cuff me round, and I whooped him. Who is this man? Robert asked. He's my pa. Look at him laying there, crying like a suckling kid. I reckon he won't be bossing me around no more. How old are you, son? What business is it of urine? Uh, who are you, anyhow? Robert told his name and replied repeated the question. I'm pretty nigh sixteen, big enough not to be bossed around, and it ain't your concern. Have you ever heard that 
Daughters and sons should honor their fathers and mothers, Robert asked. The wounded man started to get up, but fell back, exhausted and bleeding. He was not too weak to talk, however, and his voice trembled with anger, but even more with shame. If I was ten years younger, I'd wear a razor strut and plumb out on your backsides, he said. The younger man kicked dirt into his father's face. Robert restrained him. You want and loose a little blood, too, like the old man? You just give me half a reason, and I'll whoopin' both of you. The older man wept again and started to pull himself from the road by crawling and pulling at the brush. I'm going to help him home, Robert said, and started in the wounded man's direction. Leave him be, the younger man growled and jumped in front of Robert. Then go get your mother or your brothers and sisters. I ain't getting nobody. Look at him lying there, blubbering like an old woman. He's not crying for himself. He's crying for you. Does it make you feel better to shame your own father? Can you go brag about beating up a man who must be 65 or 70 years old? You're a lot more pitiful sight than he is. I said I'm going to get him home. You do what you please. The young man stood in his way, but Robert calmly stepped around him and helped the older man to his feet. When they got to the cabin, a quarter mile or more back in the woods, the occupation of the family became evident. In sight of the house, a bold spring gushed out of the rocks, and wooden tubs encircled the spring. Robert guessed that they were not full and fermenting. Corn harvest would not be until fall, but the smell of ripe mash and corn whiskey seemed to be coming from every tree. He set sat the man on the front porch of his house, and a scrawny woman, half his age, came and stood in the doorway. He's hurt. I brought him home, Robert said. Yeah, I know about it, she said, but made no effort to help her father-in-law. Robert started to turn away, sure that he could not help further. Why couldn't he help further? The thought suddenly reversed itself. If this wasn't the time and place to offer his prayers and exhortations, then there was no right place. He didn't have his Bible. He was in his, it was in his saddlebag down by the road. But he asked the man if he might pray with him. No, that wouldn't do, the man said. You might get a knife stuck in your back if you was on your knees for a long minute. Robert gave a quick but passionate prayer for the man and his family just the same. He did not close his eyes while doing it, however. As he turned away, the wounded man called, Much obliged, and added, There's cabins, plenty of them, between here and New River. You'll be wanting to spend the night someplace. It ain't fitting here, or I'd axe you. When Robert went back down the footpath to the road, his horse was gone. For a moment he was frightened, then angered. Either the youth had stolen the horse, or he had struck the animal, and she had galloped down the road. With a prayer on his lips, Robert followed the horse's tracks as they wound down the valley, in and out, paralleling the menderings of the creek. Finally, rounding a turn, he saw the animal, 
and she looked up, whinnied, and trotted to him. It was now that time between sundown and darkness, and he had eaten no dinner. His eyes searched both right and left for a house. Daylight had almost given way completely when farther along Wolf Creek he came to a large cabin built partly off of Creek Rock and finished with hue cedared logs. It reminded him of his first schoolhouse, except that the workmanship had, here was better. He did not pause to consider whether or not he would be welcome. The mountain custom was that no traveler would be turned away if he appeared as an honorable man, especially if he was also hungry and tired. Hound dogs started a mournful baying when Robert reined in at the front gate. A man of powerful build and flush of face with a mop of white hair greeted him with what Robert felt was an equal measure of gladness and suspicion. Robert got to the point quickly. Would there be room in your house for a servant of the Lord? Indeed there would, laddie, he was answered in a Scotsburg. And have you traveled far? Uh, Robert told him of the distance, but not of the happenings along the way. Tie your horse, laddie. We oughtn't, we'll ultim later, but it's about you I'm thinking. You look as lean as my hounds. Presently Robert stood in the kitchen, where he met his host's wife, sweating at the crane of the fireplace and poking a two-pronged fork uh, periodically into a stewing hen. You'll be eating a tough old hen. We're stewing her the best we can, laddie. But she's putting up a fight, she said good-naturedly. Before supper was ready, Robert had learned Ellie McComb's name and that of her husband, Shed. He marveled at how much this man and his wife looked like brother and sister, for they had the same ruddy complexions and searching blue eyes not to mention similar white hair and large-boned bodies. He was about to pluck the stewing hen from the kettle when at last Ellie McCombs invited him to the table. Would the advocate of Providence care to thank his master for this, I suspect? Very tough stewing hen, Shed asked. Robert paused for a moment, then said a very long prayer in spite of his hunger. He would not have stopped even then, for there was so much to be thankful for. His host, however, made an uneasy, made uneasy sounds that ceased only when Robert's prayer ended. When supper was over and his horse fed and turned out into the grazing lot, Robert read a chapter from his Bible to his host and hostess. You read with the piety of a devout Presbyterian, Shed said. Then I must have read... Much too slowly, Robert replied, and smiled a little. You would be Baptist then? Ellie McCombs said, in answer to his jest. No, I'm not a preacher exactly, and I'm not lined up with any denomination except by my own conscience. If I were to give you my likes, it'd be Methodist. It's a trifle of a shame, laddie, Shed McCombs said. We're looking for a sermoner within the faith, of course. Uh, and we hadn't 
haven't had one for eight months. Pity. Raised a new meeting house and got nobody to christen it. And you helped build it too, Robert said. How do you know that, laddie? Your hands. The joints of your hands are big and your knuckles and skin are shiny. You have been gripping the plane and saw for a long time and the risen of the pine and the oil of the walnut have polished your skin. You are right, laddie, and I made this house in the very bed you will sleep in, too. The talk continued even more congenially then, and Robert told the couple of his travels and exhortations and the experience he had had that very afternoon with the wounded man and his son. The old man is the only decent one of the bunch, but he's outnumbered ten to one accountant, all the in-laws who hang around, his own laddies and lassies, children and stepchildren, mate each other, their inbreeding on both sides of the house. You and him both might as well give up on that clan, if they're, they're not liquoring up, they're picking a fight with somebody. We can't forget the lost sheep, Brother McCombs, Robert said with a feeling of brotherhood he generally felt. The conversation turned to other subjects the traveler might have heard and come past, could pass on. Uh, where were their new roads? Where were there uh, any new cabins along the byways? Any new trading posts and crossroad stores? What was the political news in Areas he had visited soon what smelled what small amount of energy Robert's body held in reserve was completely exhausted. He asked to be shown to his bed with or without a white counterpane. Ellen McCombs started up the stairs and he followed. Shed called to him a tone of mirthful kindness in his voice. Laddie, sleep well and think on your best sermon. An empty church house is the delight of the devil. Suppose we disappoint him, very mildly, mildly of course, with the Methodist sermon come Sunday. Sunday was two days off, but Robert tossed and turned all night. Shed McCombs had spread the word himself. Robert learned the church house was new, and the spirit of the occasion would be the same. The older man advised him in advance. It's like a hungry laddie taken to food. When the doors have been shut, there's more hunger for the word. When Sunday came, Robert knew he had the confidence of Shed and Ellie McCombs, but it was small consolation when his own confidence, and he was sure that of some 16 or 18 other families, was lacking. He had been honest with Shedd and told him time and again that he had never preached from the pulpit before, yet there was an understanding that he had passed between them that buoyed Robert's spirits upward. Horses and buggies surrounded the church, and every pew was full or near full. Robert's legs trembled violently, and his lips stuck together, for there was no moisture in his throat. He dreaded the ending of the first hymn and hoped that the worshippers 
would be lenient with him. At last every voice was silent. Not even a cough interrupted the stillness of the small building. Even now, smelling of the hewn locust logs Shed McCombs had selected to ensure the longevity of this house of God, Robert raised his eyes to the rafters, as he had seen numerous other preachers do, and what he supposed was one last pleading for strength. His Bible was already open to Genesis, his scriptural reference for the story of Noah and the ark. He had selected that, for as Noah had come to rest in a new and uninhabited wilderness, so had the people along Wolf Creek. As he read the scriptures, his knees banged uncontrollably against each other, and the sweat of his hands left moist imprints upon the pages of the Bible. After he closed the book, he paused unduly long, forgetting how he had planned to start his oration. He made a first attempt, and his voice went high, like the changing voice of a young boy. Finally, he uttered several halting sentences, but none had any relation to the other, nor to the passages he had selected. It was no use, and he knew it. He could utter not one single word. He ran from the pulpit in his humiliation and shame, but Shed caught him at the door. <laughs> I will not let you fail, Brother Sheffy. You are God's man. I am sure of that now, laddie. I will go back with you, and you will give any of your exhortations you can remember then you will pray for us suddenly the exhortations he had used in so many different places and so often came from his lips with force and reverence he prayed asking god to bless the new church and the wilderness people and soon he had stopped formal praying and was taking talking to God as he had done in the schoolroom, oblivious to time and his surroundings. When he lifted his eyes, every pew was empty, and every knee clung to the dirt floor. As he finished, seemingly immobile bodies came to life, and countenances were radiant. Aye, methinks the devil is more than a little unhappy today, Shed said to him as they all three rode home in the buggy. Robert smiled only half-heartedly, for he still felt that he had failed. Be patient, laddie. You will be an awesome adversary of the devil in time. I'm sure of that. But neither did I learn the mastery of the wood until I had first rendered a mountain of logs into firewood. Next time, Part 2, Chapter 9.